the incomparable. Number 355, May 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. In this episode, we're talking about a classic film. Following up on our conversation a little while ago about The Godfather, we're going to talk about, guess what? The Godfather, part two from 1974. Uh, Directed, again, Francis Ford Coppola. Written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo from Mario Puzo's novel. Uh, Joining me to talk about The Godfather, part two, are these fine gentlemen? John Syracuse. Hello. Jason. If you do a podcast about The Godfather Part 3, you'll disappoint me. Are they making that? <laughs> I already made that joke. <laughs> I know. But not on the podcast. <laughs> Moises Chuyan, hello. Coming to you live in my home, in my bedroom, where my wife sleeps, <laughs> and the children I don't have play with their toys. <laughs> Merlin Mann is also here. Hi, Merlin. I'm a retired investor. <laughs> that's good and john gruber is back to talk about the godfather once more hi john hey i like the godfather part three so do i Woo! interesting <laughs> interesting so are there any opening statements that anyone would like to make about the godfather part two now would be a good time john syracusa do you have an opening statement no surprisingly i don't <sighs> you just I, me. I i i might i might have an, an abbreviated opening statement and now i'm getting stage fright doing such a thing in front of john syracusa um I, I think that uh, one of the things that, that gets uh, profoundly lost about these movies is that uh, is that they are really deeply inherently political uh, and uh, and very much about the cycle of capitalism, and uh, that's something that that becomes a a a, uh, a major theme that some lanterns get hung on in this one in particular, uh, where we you know we we bounce back and forth in time, and we see um, I, I think the uh, the the building of of uh, what we what we consider a uh, i guess i guess a, a more shameful part of the modern uh economic model but something that is uh that is a big part of it which is graft at a very uh, a variety of different levels uh and uh, i you know i you know I, I have political opinions this may not necessarily be the best place for them uh you know in a partisan fashion but generically uh, there are probably a few uh, a few uh, opinions that I have on that front. One of the things that struck me, um, I was thinking about the opening to The Godfather. You know, I believe in America. And I was thinking about that thought and the imagery in Godfather 2, which opens differently, but very quickly you see um, a, a whole bunch of interesting... I, I just It put me in the frame of mind of the immigrant story and of being a new immigrant to america when we see him uh when we when we see young Vito um looking over the one ship to see the top of the of the the statue of liberty um and i also thought about it throughout michael's performance in that context it started getting me to thinking about michael and about the burden of sort of um first generation americans children of immigrants and how that that is uh, i feel like you know that's a key part of the godfather story too is this isn't just a story about some some mobsters this is a story about immigrants who are who are in america but still like kind of kind of have their countrymen around them and then about the children of the immigrants that are not living the same lives as their parents 
and it's just and this movie hits home about that even more than the first one does there's a there's a big um link within al pacino's career to his his work in scarface where there there is this very heavy image of immigrants having to make good with what they can and struggling and scraping and resorting to vice and crime and so on and it's something that that i think has contributed to a very unfortunate assumption about immigrants in general uh, based on people paying much more attention to popular media than the actual facts and history of things. The the majority of what people see in these struggling, scraping immigrants and refugee stories is people like Vito Corleone coming over to the States and otherwise being an upstanding guy, but then turning into a crime boss. Or in the case of Scarface, uh, you know, you've, you've got Al Pacino's character who comes over uh, on the uh, on the Mariel boatlift and uh, and you know he he uh, he shows he shows America who's boss and and the the thing that the thing that bugs me about it is that there is that uh, profound misunderstanding that people have about what that life is and the struggle that that life is and the vast majority of people who are in that situation who are looking for a better life and don't build a gigantic crime family <laughs> <laughs> seems like leaving money on the table doesn't it. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is we're just we're stupid. We're that's we're, a missed we're opportunity. Money on the table. Clearly, I think uh, same actor, same director. I would argue Carlito's way is actually a better. I like Carlito's way better than Scarface. I I agree completely. I, I like Carlito's way better than Scarface for many many reasons, not just owing to the fact that I'm Cuban American. Right, and, but it's, uh, it hits with those themes though. Same themes, yeah. you know, Puerto Rican immigrant instead of instead of Cuban. Yeah. Um, usually what I do is kind of walk through the, the, the story and, and you guys can stop me. I'm going to kind of go in the blocks now because this is a movie that is told in two time frames and in the early 20th century with a uh, young Vito Corleone who as a, as an adult is played by Robert De Niro. And then in the, uh, late fifties, uh, we are focused on, on Michael and that's the, the story picking up where the Godfather left off. And uh, so they go back and forth. So I feel like that might be a good way for us to cover this kind of in blocks on that, on that topic of, uh, you know the two time frames. I was racking my brain trying to think if any other movie has done this to this degree. This is the only movie I can think of that is both a prequel and a sequel to a successful <laughs> film all in one, and not in like a lot of movies do it where it's it's a sequel. You know, it's the movie that comes after the first one that was very popular, and it continues the story but with flashbacks. This movie, as evidenced by the weird recutting where they make it chronological, it's basically two movies. Mm-hmm in one that they cut back and forth it's not like a sequel with a couple of flashbacks to give you some backstory it is two movies and the way they you know who, who has managed to do that who has the guts and the gall to say i'm gonna make a prequel and a sequel in one gigantic ridiculously long movie and you're gonna like it and they pull it off and it's like a miracle that plays into my opening statement oh yeah the thing that struck me i rewatched it this week i you know took me a couple of sittings because it's seven hours long but, <laughs> pretty uh, much it's two movies the, really so there you go in length it's too. three hours and 22 minutes but yeah round up to seven mm-hmm. what really struck me and i don't know that i ever really had this thought before was that of that group of 70s filmmakers who a lot of you know they were largely pals with each other still are uh let's just see spielberg lucas coppola uh de palma who am I leaving? Out? Yeah, those are the four I was thinking of. Yeah, we, when we when we talked about American Graffiti, we talked about those four. Right. The same context. Yeah. Uh, so let's just say those four. Oh, Scorsese. Um, sure. Can't can't leave out Scorsese. Yep. Scorsese, who uh, Coppola actually recommended to the studio when he didn't think that he wanted to direct the sequel, and they said, <laughs> "No, hell no, not Martin Scorsese. What does he know about directing a gangster movies?" Movie? Yeah. <laughs> the thing that struck me is that Coppola clearly. 
peaked before any of the other ones. And, you know, you could argue that maybe he peaked with Godfather too. I think the conversation is a masterpiece. Uh, Apocalypse now is a weird movie, but I think super compelling. But then after Apocalypse Now, what's the best movie Coppola made? I mean, he, he almost gets a bad rap because there are some interesting stuff in there. I think Peggy Sue Gets Married is maybe the best time travel movie ever made. Uh, but it, it's a little sad to me because it just seems like some of those other guys went on to keep making masterpieces and their best work was so far ahead of them. Um, but in 1972, out of that group, Coppola was clearly the one who was the, the master of the medium. And this the whole uh, sequel and a prequel in one where, where it really, I, I'd love to know, like with a stopwatch, which which of those gets the most screen time and how close to 50-50 it is. Because it's clearly not just a movie about Michael Corleone with flashbacks to his father. It's it's. 50-50. At least, at least emotionally, it's 50-50. Watching it this time, I was struck by how I felt like it was really more Michael-heavy than than the past time frame heavy that i they, that i feel like we would get a little taste of the past and then we would have a long segment in the present at least that's how i perceived it i didn't do the stopwatch thing either but it, it i was a little surprised because in my mental space of having the last time i watched this film they're absolutely you know emotionally weighed 50 50 and they're they're intended to be viewed that way but in, in terms of the runtime that was one of the things i was going to say is one of the the choice to make this movie in this in this format um i think uh Going into it, I, I with just my memory of it and looking at the runtime, my thought was Coppola basically made two movies and decided to interleave them for production reasons, for story reasons. Uh, I understand the that that he wanted to get some extra weight from the juxtaposition of the of the father and the son, and and he said that that's the reason this idea for this film even happened, as he wanted to make a movie about a father and a son at the same age and how they live their lives similarly and differently. So I get all of that. In watching it, I realized that. I don't think I'm mean, going to John's referencing that complete epic cut where they take all the early stuff and then run the first Godfather movie and then run all of the later stuff in time sequence instead of the way this is done. I don't think it come would come off as well because I think I think neither of them certainly the the early stuff doesn't feel like it would be a complete movie if you watched it in isolation. It is it is there. It's interesting, but it's also really there to add a contrast or or find uh, connections to what Michael is doing. Yeah, you have to have watched the first Godfather, otherwise, a why do you even care about Vito? And b True. none of the things that they do that that like echo forward into you know like it. it it is made consciously as a prequel. So when they do it chronological, I mean, it's fine if you have already seen all the movies and it's just an interesting recutting. But if they just told it that way, you'd be like, who is this Vito guy? And why do I care? And what's the deal with the oranges? Like, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't put the pieces together. I guess what I'm saying, though, is if they had released The Godfather Part Two as two separate films, as sort of like the young Vito Corleone film and the what happens after The Godfather film, I'm not sure the young Vito film is a film. I'm not. There's some great stuff in it, but I'm not sure it tells a complete story story in the way that I thought going in my memory told me it did instead I found that that what what it really had was this added this incredible depth to the other story I have some strong feelings about the the interleaving bit for for me they're not so much two movies as two narratives and the the flashback to Vito stuff feels emotionally you know we open on Michael and then we we jump back in time uh-huh. it feels to me like a simultaneous like what he is what he is uh, subconsciously thinking about uh, as the story is progressing, he is 
he is comparing himself to his father. He is trying to live up to his father and he is seeing his father's rise to power, uh, and, you know, r- rise up from, from childhood through rose colored glasses, almost in a way of justifying him doing everything that he's doing in this movie. He is feeling the weight of his father's legacy yep. on his shoulders these many years after the, the narrative of the first movie. And, and for me, re- referring to, uh, the Godfather saga, the Godfather, the complete epic 1901 to whatever, whatever, um, those two things that there was, there was a TV cut that was like 400 some odd minutes long. And then it was, re-edited down in runtime but with violent scenes uh added that weren't in the tv cut at something like 300 and something minutes for video so so there are two completely separate uh like six seven hour versions of this thing both of them the fundamental flaw is is exactly what you're pointing to is that there isn't a distinct separate narrative going on here and it works as vignettes it works in parallel to the to the story of michael effectively having the the don's midlife crisis where he is having he's he's resolving his crisis of conscience by couching it with well this is how my father would have done all of this stuff and and i know better because i'm doing things dad would have the the way that dad would have done it because he did this and this and i learned from my father and my i'm my father's son um and historically for me it i i i agree with john i really i i, I racked my brain re-watching this this week and i can't think of another case where there was a sequel that was at once a prequel um and 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 did things this cleanly in in either respect individually um and on top of that, I, I feel like as much as the first movie is a great standout performance for Al Pacino, this is really the beginning of the Al Pacino character, um, <laughs> that that persona, that the way that he developed himself as a screen persona. This is really, um, you know, the first movie was the was Al Pacino origins. And this is Al Pacino uh, beginning to to jump straight into his prime and become that guy who blows up in in anger and rage and has those outbursts um and that that's there there are so many different dimensions to to really appreciate the movie on uh but for me it, it as much as he got to do in the first movie this really it, between the two movies is where i feel like he gets to do the most work because we're we're getting to see his his Lee Strasberg actor studio <laughs> moment before character work literally being done as performed by Robert De Niro and you know there there are few things better than having your inner monologue performed by one of the great actors of all time in what uh i, I think john has, uh gruber has has said this uh, on a podcast of his own um and i agree with it this this really de niro's performance here is so understated and at once strong and assured it is one of the one of the standout uh among standouts if not the the greatest performance in american cinema hey merlin yeah got an opening statement mm, just to bounce a little bit off what bits of what everybody said. I I think, um, I I agree with you, Jason, that when I think about this in my head, I think of it as a 50, 50 split, but now having watched this a couple more times, uh, I, and again, I don't have a clock on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say very clearly 1959, Michael is the A story in Vita 1970, starting whatever back, you know, starting in the old Vita stuff that that's, that is the B story. The, the thing that makes a poignant though, and I guess kind of to what Moises said, I mean, you can really think of 
the Vita story being support for the Michael story. And you could almost imagine, sort of like you were saying, Moises, that like when he has these ruminative moments, he's sitting in a chair and just staring into the middle distance, that it's almost like, a, you know, I wonder what Pop would do right now. And I think so much of the poignancy of this comes out of, without being too on the nose, and, and really some of the stuff in those extended versions are a little bit cute. I mean, you meet young Hyman Roth and all that stuff. It's Most of it's that's all disposable. I guess the poignancy to this comes, uh, I guess this seems really obvious, but, you know, Vito does not know what kind of empire he's going to have. He's thinking in the short to medium term, making, you know, pretty smart decisions, being savvy, um, having sort of a, an ethical code about how he works. But really, Vito's story is about somebody who starts off in this terrible situation and then has a fairly you know, hardworking but somewhat meteoric ascent. And the poignancy to me comes out of then looking at Michael at that same age who is presiding, and obviously this began in part one, but he's, he's really presiding over a very, very changed industry. The, the way we used to do things is not going to work anymore, whether that's getting into, you know, uh, drugs like in Godfather 1, but looking at these ways, everything's going to have to change. But the same themes uh, of family and loyalty, trust, power, those things get played out in these two different interlinking stories. And then you get those crazy long multi-foot dissolves between the two. And mm-hmm. it gives you a moment to kind of like emotionally change gears as we move between those two. And it's a really weird movie. If you really forget about watching this movie for 30, 40 years, this is a very, very strange movie. I think it was very shocking to people at the time it came out, uh, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong. It got a lot yep. of mixed reviews because people thought this was bananas. What is the, who let this guy make this movie this way? But well, the, the answer is the first one was such a success that they're like, they're like, all right, they're Francis, begging him. do, do what right. carte do, blanche, do whatever you want. And, and he's on, on uh, record as saying, you know, the first movie is all about external action and the second movie is all about internal action. It is, it is this much mm. more introspective kind of film. And uh, that he wanted to make as an art film almost about a father and a son. And instead, he just was like, I'll just make The Godfather Part Two and have it be about that. And it is shockingly, again, Merlin, like you were saying, you know, what, what lives in our minds um, versus what's on the on the screen. I, I just the tone of it, too, struck me as being so different from the first film. It is a very different film in a lot of ways. It is not just a, a, a pick up the, the storyline of the first. It does that. But that's not what the film is. It is it's sort of surprising dark and weird and uh and and arty in ways that you would be you'd be surprised by i think well, the, fir- the first one's much more of an ensemble kind of uh, ensemble narrative and this one is much more driven entirely by michael and everybody else is along for the ride i uh yeah it's, it's so difficult to go back and watch these things you you, you know it becomes like the mona lisa but uh, yeah i agree the tone the tone <laughs> does feel very different and it's there's something um, I don't know. I should probably save this for closing rather than opening. But like after watching this so many times, I now I, I sit and I watch that last scene. You see Michael in the seat. It starts to fade out, and it's so strange to me that he is the main character in this. But I still don't feel like I know him very well. It's such an accomplished performance in such a such a terrific movie. But it's so interesting to me that Michael still is a little bit of a cipher by the end of this movie, which I, I think is. I don't know if y'all agree, but I, I think that's still such a fascinating part of this is like, what is he thinking right now? Yeah, that, that's what's what what affects me so much about the, the difference in tone is because it is so profoundly Michael's movie, the getting to know him better by 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 watching things in many ways through his perspective, pretty much overriding the whole narrative. He is so distant and so detached and so aloof and cold, just 
ice cold that it's it's difficult to really come to the end of the movie feeling like you have a more profound impression of who this person is than you did at the beginning of it. I think I did. Like I, I, I think I, you really get to know Michael in the story. And I, I also have a slightly different take on the on what the the flipping back and forth between the stories is showing. Moises, you were saying it was kind of like uh, thinking what his father would do or, or whatever. The way the way this movie feels to me, and I've seen it many times, and this feeling has never gone away, is that when they do those those fades back to the past. The, the contrast that, that the movie is is putting in my face is Michael's doing this stuff, but Michael doesn't know to the degree that the, that the the flashbacks are showing. Michael doesn't know all that stuff. Sure, his father told him the basic story of maybe how he came to America and where he is, but he didn't live it. He doesn't know it. He doesn't understand it. He's in the present day, and I think he is thinking about, you know, uh, what should I do? He has to. He has to go to his mom to ask. Yes, like, yeah, you know, yeah. mom would pop yeah. doing the situation, right? I believe that's what he's thinking. But the movie switches back to say, "Here's what Michael doesn't know. Here's what <laughs> it was like for his father during this time." And he like to show you how far off track Michael actually is. That he doesn't. He doesn't understand how things were for his father. What his father did. What he was trying to do. The context of everything. He only knows. The fa- his father at the end, sort of the empire that he grew up in and the maintenance thereof and the, the political strategy and what you're supposed to do for your family. And like he's, you know, in the Roman Empire as, as its peak, which they, you know, they, they put a pin on several times with the mm-hmm. whole Roman Empire analogy. And the flashbacks are like, unbeknownst to Michael, this is what the deal was. Look at this person. This person is not like Michael. Michael is so far off the rails that, you know, he is he has forgotten the face of his father to pull in another <laughs> uh Thing. like and th- that that heartbreaking is the heartbreakness of going back and seeing Vito seeing how difficult Vito a life Vito had and you know how he was uh, you know marginalized and and uh found himself to you know m- make his way while retaining as much of his integrity and goodness as he possibly could while still trying to provide and also having ambition and so on and so forth and then they come back to the present and you see you see just how far gone Michael is and through the whole movie he he plays it very cold but you his flaws are expressed in the in the little things that he does like you can see that the need michael has it's in the godfather part one as well like seems like a good old american boy but like there there are a couple of there are a couple of things in his brain and things in his personality that drive him to do things you know that are spiteful that are evil that his need for power and respect uh, in a way, you know, in a sort of more sophisticated, more angry way than Fredo, who also wants respects for, for for other reasons. And so much of what Michael does wrong in this movie is driven by those flaws that his father just does not have. His father, De Niro, has the easy confidence in his abilities, in his in his righteousness and in his general goodness. And Michael doesn't have that. All he's got is like he's got a, a tiny devil on both of his shoulders for the whole movie. And every time you see him like you can make this right, Michael, he can't help but like you know, needle someone or stick someone because they, you know, they weren't, you know, he, he comes out and says at the end, you know, you gotta wipe everybody out. No, not everybody. Just only my enemies. Um, <laughs> that that's Michael for Turns you. Turns out he has a lot of yeah. enemies. Yeah. Well, you know, like not, not for long. <laughs> I, I, I probably phrased it wrong, but I, I, my, my notion was when we, when we flash back, 
that's what he's doing but he's not he doesn't he doesn't have like uh, omniscient um protagonist perspective he doesn't necessarily necessarily see everything that we're seeing in the flashbacks or it could be that the flashbacks are informed by by what his perspective on his father's past were but we see him in the present even if he does have that kind of full view of what it is that we're seeing when we go to young Vito, we're seeing all of his blind spots where you know you can you can show somebody something that makes perfect logical sense and then they can uh they can go uh, they can go forward in a way that completely undermines what it is that they're actually trying to accomplish blind to how they're undermining themselves um but i i think you make a very good point about the kind of generational loss of godfather to godfather where he you know regardless of of precisely you know the directorial intent or precisely you know what we're supposed to be gleaning from it narratively we're we're visibly seeing him just not getting it in terms of the reason that his dad did certain things the way that he did them and it's something that you know in in the theoretical third movie uh, you know we see we see even more degradation as a result of that but not to skip to the end but i feel like you mentioned the, uh, what you know merlin mentioned like oh the last scene but the last scene is not him in the chair which by the way is a nice echo of you know the 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 yeah. chair sitting with the oranges in the first movie and how, you know, he's completely alone and his grandchild is not running out. We'll talk about later. But the last scene in this movie is my favorite flashback. Uh, every time I watch it, somehow I forget that this thing is going to be there. And I always also think of him sitting in the chair, just staring out like as the, mm-hmm. the end of the movie. It's not the end of the movie. The flashback they go to there is like what I feel like is. Now let's revisit the Godfather 1 mm-hmm. class. Uh, we've seen this whole movie. We've seen how this tragedy has unfolded. We've seen what's happened. Here's Michael in the chair staring out into the distance because, you know, bad things have happened, right? And he's living with the consequences. Now let's flashback one more time. Let's show you Michael in Godfather Part 1. He's just enlisted. And the guy who we couldn't get to appear in this movie is going to come for dinner soon. So let's all get ready and, uh, you know, uh, introduce uh, Carlo to Connie. And, and you know, like the, the Godfather 1 time frame. At the time we are introduced to Michael and Godfather one, he is the good boy. And that movie is, you know, the the tragic groping of him into this this world or whatever. But we go back now knowing what Michael is really like and what he's going to turn into. And we go back to Godfather Part one and see, was that stuff present in the Michael of the Godfather one? Was that little like, uh, you know, kind of needly chip on the shoulder flaw anger? That was totally there. There he is at the dinner doing the right thing. I enlisted because I believe in America, blah, blah, blah. But still a little bit, you know, kind of he demands respect. He knows what's best. He is a little bit full of himself. He's a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of an upstart, even though he's he's not the eldest brother. When they all go to meet their father at the door, he sits there silently at the table drinking his drink apart from everybody else. And so it's like, aha, even then it was still there. Like to, to bring, I, I just love it because it brings you back to the time when the family was all there together and it shows you everything you've seen unfold in Godfather part one and two was in all of these people from the get go. It's not as if we, you know, introduce these character traits to make stories out of the movies one and two. These characters, you know, it, it's obviously retconning, but you know, these, these characters were these characters from the beginning and these people's lives played out the only possible way they could with Sonny the Hothead and Michael, even then when he was the good boy, college student, army hero or whatever, he was always the same person. Yeah. And, it, and it makes, I think it clarifies the Michael of part two to, to reveal him as a character who is just 
come into what he was always going to come into with tragic circumstances that trapped him in that. Did they really, I don't know the trivia on this, did they really try to get Brando to come back for that scene? They did, and it, it broke down, like, they thought the day of they were going to get him, but they just didn't get the deal finalized. They, they handled it pretty well, all things considered. I don't, that scene doesn't work for me. It feels really hasty. The scene originally had him in it, and they effectively had to make it up on the day. I, I love it. I, it's like not seeing the shark in Jaws. I love it. Right. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I, no, I just, it's, it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit fan servicey to me. I love the way Michael's portrayed. Uh, you know, and supposedly, again, according to IMDb, uh, James Caan demanded the fee that he got for Godfather 1 just to appear in that scene. Pretty amazing. <laughs> Good for him. Good for James Caan. Well, th- there were there were a lot of contractual renegotiations for this one. Like, that's why we didn't get Clemenza back and we got off-brand, uh, store-brand Clemenza uh, in this movie. You know, everybody wanted their rates upped. Yeah, that's okay. Except Dave Vigoda. Troll <laughs> <laughs> time's sake. Uh, it reminded me... when. When you got to see Sonny again, it's the only thing I could compare it to, even though it's across two movies in a, a couple of years, but uh, it reminds me of in Pulp Fiction when you get to see Travolta again. And it's actually yeah. both were like massacred oh, right. by, in a hail of bullets. <laughs> right. But then it's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. He, he died and all that. Right. He pretended to punch that guy. Other than last <laughs> that last scene, the movie is more restrained than I than than I thought it could be at in the flashbacks of having it be like francis coppola's mobster babies where it's like i mean they do have like hey it's young clemenza and it's bruno kirby credited as like b kirby jr or something but it's bruno kirby and it's yeah. kind of, he's fun as as young clemenza but i i was at one point like are we going to get a parade of cameos and even with the kids like they try to give us a little tidbit of like the kids personalities or their future when they're kids but it's not <laughs> overdone like i I expect to be like oh that's sunny he's such a hothead he's gonna be in trouble and there's nothing like that but if you watch carefully you can see little things about those kids and maybe it's just me you know i I so wanted to read into like the future of these children because you're seeing these children that you're seeing as adults over here are young children over here and you're like what kind of a world is this person going to go into what kind of a life is this person going to have but like i said i I think the movie is very subtle uh, at most points not all points in doing that and not having it just be a a a parade of cameos of you know young this character and young that character and and i'm okay you're you're mentioning bruno kirby as as young clemenza i you know lacking castellano reprising his role as clemenza bruno kirby is is one of these character actors who is tremendously under uh under recognized and underappreciated if you ask me and and he really uh, for me you know the the flashback scenes were were fun and then bruno kirby shows up and just knocked it out of the park oh, yeah. for me well, bruno you know kirby. where we where we get notes of that character that we didn't even see in the first movie we didn't see that much of clemenza clemenza was like a trusted lieutenant type but he didn't have he didn't have a bunch of big character stuff to do where in this movie the uh, 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 the Frankie character is is effectively you know he shows up he's like oh old man Clemenza died you know I'm wearing a black armband I'm the new Clemenza I've re- he's regenerated as me um, you know he he gets to do the stuff that that actor would have gotten to do at that age uh, but you know I I don't miss that as much as I uh, as I think I would have if if Bruno Kirby hadn't done such a great job as young Clemenza again not not making it feel like Muppet Babies for gangsters um that you know that that for me is is what what worked really well all right we should probably run through the story or we could just start closing statements now <laughs> <laughs> let's take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor this week 
The Incomparable is brought to you by Blue Apron. We're getting to the end of springtime. Great time to hit the reset button and retackle your personal goals, getting fit, cleaning, and of course, cooking healthy and cooking yourself. Blue Apron makes incredible home cooking easy and accessible. They deliver seasonal recipes with step-by-step instructions and pre-portioned ingredients right to your door for less than $10 per meal. You can customize your recipes based on your preferences and select a delivery option that's right for you. Pick your day and pick your food, and there's no weekly commitment. So if you look at a week and think, eh, I'm not really feeling it, or you're not going to be around, you just pass over that week Blue Apron doesn't deliver. You don't get charged. You move on to the next week. Some of the upcoming meals available at Blue Apron. Beef teriyaki stir-fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice. Oh, I had that. That was really good. Three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce. That's right. We make our stuff with Blue Apron a couple nights a week, the whole family, and we save those recipe cards. And other nights of the week, we replay favorite Blue Apron recipes with stuff we buy at the store. So it has really changed our entire family menu. So check out this week's menu, and you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping. Go to blueapron.com slash Snell. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to make these incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash Snell. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Again, I'll run through it in blocks, and uh, if there's stuff that you want to talk about in those sections, let's... Uh, Let's do it. Um, the opening block is um, nine-year-old Vito. Um, his dad, what is it? His dad has been killed by the local Don. His uh, At the funeral, his uh, brother, who's on the run because he's vowed revenge, is, is killed at the funeral and his mother collapses in a heap on the on the casket and then his mother takes young Vito to the dawn to demand that they be that that he be spared to to beg not to demand well so yeah like, i suppose killed, that's you true half my family just how about how about you give me this right. one <laughs> well she like, she starts eh, with begging no. then she then she do, do, breaks out a knife and threatens him and they shoot her shoot her to death and he demands that that young Vito also be killed and Vito runs away um and is squired uh, you know snuck out of town on in a bag on a donkey and uh, <laughs> escapes to new york where he is registered uh as Vito corleone on ellis island because he says he's Vito andalini from corleone I, I, I have to say let me let me defend don chicho here or what, what is that his name don the, yeah don, the, the don who who, ki- who kills his family he was right. Oh, he's totally right. Uh, he's like, I'm I mean, not worried. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm worried about what this kid's going to do when he grows up. It's like the mom's like, oh no, don't worry. He'll he'll forget all about you killing his brother and his father. It'll be fine. And the Don was right. I mean, you know, in, in the end, it wasn't that bad because he was pretty old by the time he gets killed later in the movie. But I just feel like you try to run a, a crime family. You 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 you're doing everything right, and just a couple of sloppy henchmen, and that's it for you. One kid escapes on a donkey, and you're it's, that's it's right, over. And that's it. It's like that kid's gonna come boomeranging back. And, you know, I mean, look at that can of olive oil. Oh no, I'm being gutted. Can we give? Can we give? Vito's mother, the mother of the year award. For- well, I, I give her, I, I take some points away for how easily the knife was removed from the neck of that guy. Look, <laughs> yeah. you got him by the neck. I know you can't kill him immediately because if you kill him immediately, your son is dead. You have to hold the knife at his neck to give your son time to escape. But you didn't give him much time, and they basically just pulled your hand away. 
And and then she didn't even flee or run or cover. I mean, let, let's know. be honest. She could have gone to knife wielding class once or twice extra a week. Mm. Yeah, you know? I'm just saying. Like she was so she was so adamant about. It. She was so smart about hiding the knife. She got the knife at the guy's throat. This is a problem with a lot of the uh, the you know 70s movies in terms of the choreography of the the fight scenes we talked about in The Godfather One. It just it wasn't as sophisticated an art, and we were okay with kind of stage punches. And stuff like that, whereas I think there's a higher standard now for looking like you really are strangling that person or you really are pulling them towards you with all your might. And the back then, like, they were basically pantomiming. I have a knife at your throat. The, the first you know. first movie, James Conn could get away with screwing up, hitting a guy in the face with a trash can lid, which yep. should not be that difficult. But but this one, they really, you know, it, it had to be a bit slicker. Yeah, but but she she is a great mom, and I loved her outfits, too. While she's still on plan A, begging begging for their lives, she calls Vito slow-witted. Yeah. <laughs> right he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't talk. flinch. He's only nine and dumb-witted. He never speaks. <laughs> Vito's sitting there going, she's right, more or less. I don't, I don't say anything. <laughs> um, I like the... I, I do appreciate it, and it's never... We see him running away, and then we see the, the, the husband and wife um, putting him in the bag and but they put him in the trunk of the donkey yeah exactly <laughs> exactly right and 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 then he goes out of town and like waves at the guys who are looking who are in front of the the church he's like hey how's it going and uh th- that's really good and then we cut to him you know on the ship uh in in uh in the harbor going to ellis island and seeing the With smallpox uh, yeah yeah and seeing the uh seeing the statue of liberty which again you know could it be clearer about the immigrant experience and he gets famously as maybe didn't actually happen but famously his name is misregistered and he's vito corleone this this movie is a lot to blame i think for the idea that everyone's names got changed yeah snopes.com has a whole web page on all of this yeah most of the names that people changed when they came to the new world were because they wanted to change their names not because they were changed for them accidentally but uh but still uh so that's the, that's the first block that's all we get we don't see him um a- again for a little bit and i think it's i think it's really interesting because as a parent i'm sitting there thinking there's a nine-year-old kid who doesn't speak english who has traveled halfway around the world on his own to a new country what's going to happen to this poor kid and his legs his legs dangling dangling off the chair it's so sad yeah, that's the best part where he gets into his little tiny room which oh. which of course the the room the quarantine room for small box of course has a literal view of the statue of liberty yep. which is a little artistic <laughs> license we're going to put in here but what does he do he takes the chair and he points it towards the window and he sits down at it like like he doesn't have many lines but how perfectly cast is that kid that kid is such a great actor and how did they find a kid who was so scrawny like yeah <laughs> they just starved him for a few weeks hey, it was 1973 i mean his child labor laws had not come into being he, he really transformed for the role. He went on the talk the night, uh, late night circuit and talked about how he really transformed himself for the role. He did a Christian Bale. I also want to, in passing, want to do a shout out to the whole scene. One of the first of many wonderful crowd scenes in this movie. I'm a huge fan of minor Godfather characters. <laughs> Some of the most memorable characters, like the guy playing the accordion in the hotel room in number one. There's these people you're just never going to forget. And the scene that, the, again, that just, I guess, panning shot or dolly shot of just going through and somebody's playing a violin uh, yeah. and everybody's doing something. It uh-huh. doesn't look like a bunch of extras just standing around. They all got costumes. First of probably, I don't know what, at least three of those kinds of shots. Obviously, the parade, the festa uh, would be kind of the champion here. But what a great bit of world building. 
building, the sepia tone world. Uh, that they, they don't cheap out on Ellis Island, right? It, it is not. It no, is fully no. realized there is a room full of immigrants who are speaking different languages and all are doing things. There's the lady, garb. lady who's yeah. speaking German. They're all looking at the Statue of Liberty. They have that big uh, tracking shot where they're all they're all their faces are upturned looking at the Statue of Liberty. And each one of those faces, you see like what what this whole thing means. To yeah, them, you know. No lines. A lot of restraint for the dialogue here for everybody. Again, Vito doesn't say anything this whole time. We're like, well, how does Vito feel about what is this? What is he doing? Is he just being checked up? And we find out what, how he feels about it when he takes that chair, turns it towards the window, sits down on it, and his little feet start to swing. And he yeah. sings, starts singing a little song to uh-huh. himself. Right? That's right. Staring at the Statue of Liberty. That's, that's little Vito. Can I just say, as a parent of a current 13-year-old, how completely incapable my son would be? Totally. <laughs> with you. I don't, I'm not entirely sure that I could drop him off at the airport with a ticket, and he would get to, like, Italy on an yeah. airplane. You just draw a chalk X on his shirt and put a circle around it. He'll get to where he's going. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the exact same thought, John. With our, and our sons are about similar ages, and it's just like, I don't, I don't have any belief that, like, I, like, he would still be on the boat they just turn the boat around and go back to italy he would have never gotten off like here's here's the key still still playing minecraft you just need him to see both of his parents die in front of him and that will really kick him into gear i guess he snapped out of it yeah that could be that could be and his brother um next the next block uh it's 1958 we're at lake tahoe this movie a lot of it takes place around lake tahoe um this is uh the a communion for and there's a party like celebrating the the mike one of michael's kids first uh communion it's an echo of the wedding exactly right and they have meetings it's outdoors and you mentioned about the extras before this in my notes is where i had the thing about the extras like this is a party scene, like the thing in the first one, but of course it's part two, so everything is scaled up. Look at this party scene. They have a complete party. Every single guest it looks like they have like there was given like a backstory and a role, and like mm-hmm. you just don't see this in movies these days. And it's not because like they don't want to like they had no other way to do this, and they had the budget to, to actually do this. So they're like, we're going to make a full party. They have they have boats time to be going through the scene in the background like mm-hmm. there's no there was no cg for them to do this stuff they had to stage all this thing and i'm like how much must this have cost and how long did it take to shoot this getting all these extras to do all the things they're supposed to do to be in their little characters to have the the motorboats and the sailboats go by just at the right time and all of it shot at the right level of lighting and everything like i'm i'm surprised at how shocked i was at that you could pull off a shot like this in the days before CG. I'm not going to say they would have done the whole crowd in CG these days, but they'd be tempted to do elements of this in CG, but they just had no choice back then. So they're like human beings, human being power and wardrobe and real clothes and real actors and a tremendous amount of time marshalling them. And a real band playing Pop Goes the Weasel. It just, it it blows me away. A lot of (laughs) walkie-talkies. Not in the movie, but obviously. Yeah, all the, okay, sailboat, turn back around, sailboat. Yeah. We need you to do that again. Like like in the first movie, like, I don't know if they're a really good job of like, you know, put out the casting call for, I mean, the first movie is like put out the casting call for Italian-Americans. And here it's like a mix of the the, the mob people and like the the Nevada sort of Midwestern type people exemplified by the the congressperson and all that. Oh, yeah. Um, and, the, and the whole thing, the whole scene is basically at Magic Hour. Like, there's golden light in everybody's head. So it's like, how many days did it take to shoot this? Oh, the senator we get to meet here, who is who yeah. is, is from Nevada, although speaks with kind of a Texas-y accent. He gets to introduce us to Vito Carleon. Carleon, yeah. <laughs> which he intentionally mispronounces, which is Carleon. great. Because later, later he says it correctly to show that he can. Uh, and and uh, we also meet... Uh, 
uh, potentially, right? Who who is uh, who is angry because the Rosado brothers the are, are are pushing him? Well, yeah, but the Rosado brothers are pushing on his territory, and they work with Roth. And I got to do something about it. But of course, Michael has got a, a deal with Roth to do the uh, to do the casino, and uh, so they got to like you got to not not uh, act against it. And that's we have the kind of an immediate uh, conflict that happens. And of course, then uh, this block also ends with uh, Michael admiring a, car- a crayon drawing uh, of of uh, of himself in a car uh, made by his son. Do you like it? Check yes or no. Uh, which is very sweet until the hail of bullets through it's the window. Very sweet and very tragic because even like here's the thing: like it seems sweet, like oh, the kid is making a nice picture for his dad, but the picture he's making is not a good reflection of a working relationship. No. And the check yes or no box is a desperate plea yes. for attention and communication yep. from his father. And so like you feel like Michael looks at it and is proud of his son's rendition, but also recognizes is also smart enough to recognize that this is not healthy. How 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 great was uh Frank Pentangeli at acting drunk at that party. I, <laughs> I, I, I was. That was. Uh, I don't. I don't know how much he was acting. <laughs> I don't know either. But I do think as I, it's just one of those things that it seems like it's very hard to get right. It's. I think it's hard to act inebriated. Uh, I do. I think it often comes across as phony, even from otherwise good actors. And boy, it just really, he just acts like exactly what a, uh, you know, Michael's older cousin from, from the New York would, would act like. He's as drinking he gets, from the hose outside. I love when he drinks from the hose. <laughs> I do too. I love that. <laughs> Cause that's such a, that's such a, like a thing that like, you know, kids do, uh, you know, like drunk, drinking from the hose in the summer and just like he gets a little drunk and he just reverts to his normal ways. He's pissed right. off about the, about the hors d'oeuvres and the crappy West coast food and he's yeah. drinking from Can the water piece. hose and he wants to get into talking yeah. to michael uh, you know there's probably an outtake somewhere where he just decided to take a leak against a tree yeah. just just because uh, another one of these characters that just shows up fully formed i mean he, it yeah. seems like this feels like the final season of a show where he's been playing that character for six years yeah 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 oh and, and the, the, there there's so much parallelism in this movie uh, to the first movie, and for me, him doing a great job playing drunk, which again, not not an easy thing to do well, is something that that for me mirrors at the at the wedding in the first movie, John Cazale playing Fredo, again doing a great job playing drunk, which people don't generally do well, and playing a particular kind of drunk who is gonna you know take his his uh, his younger brother's girlfriend by the face and kiss her on the cheek, and just stare at her. And not say anything because he's he's drunk out of his out of his gourd. Uh, there 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 those little touches throughout this scene that go back to the wedding scene uh, of the of the first movie. Not not the same characters doing the same things, but a lot of the same notes, a lot of the same kind of misbehavior, a lot of the same kind of embarrassment and and that sort of thing. Well, reintroducing us to Fredo and to Connie also needs to happen here. You need to get the geography of the family together, just like in that first movie. Yeah, you need to see how Connie has changed. And how Fredo hasn't. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like it, it's not like the first movie where you had to introduce a hundred characters, which is this amazing feat that they pull off in that one party scene. But this does fulfill the same rule of setting up the plot. There are fewer moving pieces here. Michael is in his father's seat inside the darkened room indoors, taking meetings, but not so many meetings. And we do know a lot of these characters already, so it's, it sets up our conflict. You got Pantangeli, you got the congressman, you you know the basically senator. The, the, yeah, yeah, senator. Oh, sorry, the senator. These the Italians are not welcome. In Nevada, oh. that that whole scene where where uh, the senator points the little cannon at his desk at him and makes all these threatening demands or whatever, like, and Michael comes back in his typical way. You could have my answer answer now if you'd like. <laughs> like, just, that's 
uh, it's very different than the equivalents in the first movie, but it this this fulfills the same function to to set up the uh, set up the conflicts that are going to play out for the rest of the movie. There's a I think that it's it 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 succeeds so well as a scene overall, all the way from mm-hmm. daytime to nighttime, in in setting the sort of theme which we've already talked about that Michael has sort of become unmoored. He's sort of lost his bearings as as a human being in a way that Vito never did. Right. That, that, that's, that's the story of the movie, uh, that Vito had like a, a moral core that Michael doesn't. And I feel like the, the contrast to the wedding in the first movie with this is that the wedding in the first one, they were where they were supposed to be. They're in New York. The band uh-huh. is a bunch of paisans who can, you know, play these songs. And, and when Pantangeli goes up there and tries to get him to, you know, and he's trying to get him to play it. And, and he's so good at it. But those guys, it just, the fact that the band doesn't know what to do. Yeah. It just shows like this isn't, they're not where they're supposed to be. They're nowhere. Like Michael's moved the family to like, it's not the wrong place, but it's not the right place. As beautiful as the backdrop is of, of Lake Tahoe, you know, in winter and in summer where we see it in both, in both places here, it, you're absolutely right feels wrong like why are we here what are we doing out here and the band just puts the finest point on it that they are they are way away from their roots in so many ways going into the casinos which is you know away from the roots of the businesses that that Vito was involved with leaving new york being in in nevada of all places it it just it feels wrong the whole way through as it's a beautiful backdrop but it doesn't it doesn't feel right there's a lot of echoes from this movie forward into goodfellas uh one of them getting back to what we talked about earlier is the well we'll get to when we get to the section with Vito and realizing like what what the mafia was when Vito arrived in new york and the reflection in goodfellas where they come right out and say it's like the police for wise guys they can't go to they can't go to the police they need someone else to you know so the that thing but in this one it's the uh you know, no, the band is wrong and the food is wrong. It's whatever it was, like liver on Ritz crackers, trying to tell them, you know, that it was yeah. a canapé or whatever. That's egg noodles and ketchup, right? It's the same yeah. thing where, where Ray Liotta is, is fish out of water, taken out of his element and put somewhere else. And he gets egg noodles and ketchup when he asks for spaghetti and meatballs. And it does feel wrong. Um, but it also feels like, because remember the first movie, not that they were on the run so much, but that they, the five families thing went down and they had to get out of there. Like it was like, one big final triumph and also a shift west and there's money in casinos and he's built this fortress for himself he's built this giant palace and fortress even bigger than his dad's set up everything is beautiful there's tons of people but they're not wanted here it's very clear uh and yeah they everybody everybody seems out of place even to like his bodyguards which look less italian than the than the people who were guarding him in the first movie or certainly the people that were guarding him in italy yeah the the guy that Connie's brought home is uh, is some you know curly headed dude named Merle. Uh, I mean I mean who wants to hang out with a guy named Merle anyway? Oh my god! Poor, poor Merle. Oh my god! The way the way Michael talks about him right in front of his face it's just savage. And, and that's that's one of the great. I think it's one of the great laugh lines. I just at the beginning of the movie. You know if you if you don't listen to me and marry this man, big long pause. Big long pause. Just after we had seen him like do the confrontation with the senator and everything. You'll disappoint me. Ice cold, but also yeah. uh, somewhat funny because they're all waiting for what what terrible thing is going to happen. And Connie, 
like she is a mess. She is falling apart, you know, yeah. justifiably after the events of the first she, movie. Yeah, she's she's like, you know, got sores on her face. And is like, what do you mean I have a meth problem? You know, <laughs> she's she's really out of sorts and just does not get how out of sorts yeah. she is. Everything. I mean, everything is wrong, right? That's basically the message of the scene. It is this intricate scene that sets up the story, but it also just gives you the sense, especially if you're coming in remembering the first movie, you're like, wow, this is not like this is not good. People are in in bad bad places here and thus begins the movie the 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 one other bit about the the chess pieces on the board that i wanted to make mention of you know we mentioned hyman roth uh which is you know meyer lansky with a different name there's something from the first movie that that wasn't mentioned on on the episode you guys did on the first one uh that that i wanted to call out here which is the character johnny fontaine which is basically frank sinatra or not even basically just is supposed to be (laughs) frank sinatra to the extent that Francis Ford Coppola was persona non grata with with Sinatra, with Sinatra's people, with the people that Sinatra was attached to uh, in a dangerous sense, um, just for that character existing in the first movie. You know, we've got we've got a doubling down on the real life uh, corruption involving people like Meyer Lansky, you know, further underlines the fact that Mo Green was was the Bugsy Malone type yep. uh, before before Mo got taken out in the first movie. Um, and and that that whole thing, they they do anything but run away from it uh, because, I mean, they, they move them out west. Uh, but they they really, you know, there there are I guess you could say they could, they could have been more disrespectful of Lansky, uh, you know, than than cast somebody of the enormous stature of Lee Strasberg. Um, but it uh, it definitely sets up that that they are they are not shying away from from any of that stuff that uh, that brought them out west. Right. So the next uh, flashback block is uh, with Robert De Niro now as a young Vito Corleone. He's uh, he's married. Sonny has already been born. He works at a uh, at a grocery in Little Italy. Um, this is one of those moments that I was thinking about um, when I was thinking about where we left him and how, how is this kid going to survive in the United States? He doesn't even speak English. And this is the answer is that there's a whole community of Italians in New York and they they have Italian groceries and they all speak Italian and that's where he is. And that's how he is able to presumably make it to this point of being a young man who's married with a son. Um, but unfortunately, he does lose his job at the, at the grocery store because because Don Fanucci needs his uh, ne'er-do-well c- cousin needs a job, and so uh, and, and which leads to a very uh, sweet scene where the guy who runs the grocery is very sad that he has to get uh, get rid of Vito and wants to give him a box of groceries. He runs out on the street and gives tries to give them to him, and he and he, Vito refuses him. Um, he doesn't not doesn't refuse Don Fanucci because that would be unwise, but he does feel really bad about, uh, Vito's, uh, losing Vito's job. And then, uh, and then, yeah, Bruno Kirby invites him to go visit a friend's house where they steal a rug. <laughs> I, I like the idea that his wife would love a rug. Like, it really brings home, like, that. yes, there is community there, but they're all very poor. The, the living conditions are not great. They don't have a rug. They would like to have a rug, but who can afford a rug? I noticed it this time for the very first time. Uh, it was one of the things I picked up. First time I noticed it was just how ill-fitting the rug was in their house because it was too big it's yeah. actually it's actually like a couple of inches too big so it's curled up at, at the sides just a little bit it's just ever so slightly too big for the room whereas in the room they stole it from it yeah. was just a little a little rug in this throw rug in the center of the room it's a nice little touch 
How much I love the scene. It's such a subtle, it's so subtle, but it's so perfectly played. I just love the scene where as the grocer's trying to fire Vito and Vito just, he sees, he says, I say, I get it. I I get it. I know exactly what's going on. It's easy. Don't worry. You have to, you know, it's okay. Yeah. You have to get rid of me. Well, it makes you you realize what a good guy Vito is. Like we know him as the scary godfather and he's like, I understand how this works. It's fine. I don't want your stuff. You don't need to give me the box. You've been good to me all these years and I'll remember points to his head. I'll I'll remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The super chill enlightened Buddhist godfather where he's completely unflappable. He's like, this is only a thing and this is a thing that has happened and now life continues. Mm -hmm. He's, he, he, you know, I, I know that it's sort of a, a, the good father, good Goodfellas as a counterpart to the Godfather is sort of the, and Scorsese has even said it that none of these guys are good guys. And if there's a problem with the Godfather movie, it's that the God, you know, Vito Corleone is sort of he is he's a good guy. He's you can't you know he's a crime boss. Well, but, he he does immediately go to murder as a solution for the situation. You know, he never he no, never kills like anybody in either movie who doesn't deserve it. Well, I mean, you know, that's, I'm sure that's what all yeah. I'm sure that what all criminal masterminds think. John, does he have your family? You can tell us, like. There's no way that he would know. You can tell us he's, right now. He never kills anybody who doesn't deserve it. He's a good, you know, he, he's a good man. He has a sense of justice. His sense of justice. He, right. he has an he has an e- he has an ethos. So now, John, John, you're doing you're doing the senator's defense from later in the movie <laughs> of Vito Corleone right now. Many like, fine Italian Americans. He's a good man. He's a decent man. <laughs> no, but I think that's the contrast to Michael, and it's it's that he he it, in both movies he doesn't have insecurities. He doesn't have internal flaws that cause him to externalize. His his internal. Yeah. Anger. Okay. Let, let me jump in here because that's I was was gonna almost bring this up with Pantangeli, but one thing I got on this last watching is, you know, obviously we, they first of all could anybody be cooler than Robert De Niro in this movie? He's <laughs> no, so no. Robert De Niro running across the roofs is just it's it's so glorious. But yeah, I mean they're setting him up as having an ethos. You see, you see Michael. There's a certain kind of I almost want to say stoicism. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's a certain. One reason people get in trouble in these movies is that they have a vulnerability that is not offset by their usefulness. And I think that's something that both of the Godfathers really pick up on is there's certain kinds of problems, vulnerabilities, hangups, addictions, weak spots. There's things that you can put up with, but if you cross them, then that vulnerability is going to be exposed in a way that's going to be very, very ugly for you, or you might just get killed. And it's there, it's there, the way that they keep things, play things so close to the chest. I mean, anybody in these movies who is a hothead, you know, is a sunny type character, or is somebody who has sometimes people with addictions, these are the people who become a problem, and then they have to be dealt with. (laughs) It's, 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 I guess I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but then there's, there's the scene where the guy, his wife says, you know, sends her friend over that the, her landlord's kicking her out because of her dog. Because of the dog. I like this, like the kind of things that the Godfather was dealing with in the beginning. It was mostly dog related issues. Well, <laughs> this, but that's this is Columbo. The idea that he, that it's not just being a criminal, right? He's, he's there kind of like, he's like the poli- police for people who can't go to the police. That's right. He's the neighborhood, you know, guy who will help make things right. He's, he's the he'll community use his custodian. Uh, he'll use his leverage to do what is, what is necessary. And, and, and he does the Godfather thing, because he, he goes immediately, he's not like, oh, Vito's such a good guy. He's going to help out the lady with the dog. First thing he says is, what, what do you want me to want to do? It's a dog. What, what's, what do you want, what do you want me to do about it? And then that, and that's part of his shtick is, you know, you come to me with this thing like what's you know and it's event he he wants to have his respect paid maybe that's where where Michael gets it in a much mm-hmm. more severe form she you know and the wife sitting next to him going uh uh-huh, like you know it's it's such a weird 
baby version of the dynamic that will eventually be when you know when marlon Blando, brando is the yeah. godfather on the day of his daughter's wedding right this is a scene that plays a little bit as this is you know how it started this it's a version of the scenes you remember from the first movie like the proto version of that is that scene but, although but we're not there stakes, yet but, much lower stakes and funnier yes. and but but and revealing of him him figuring out how he's going to be this person he's going to be because he doesn't know how this is all going to turn out he's not coming in here saying i'm going to build a criminal empire he's just doing what it takes and he he has an intuitiveness about manipulating people while while still making them love you that he's able to, even with his friends he pulls a steve jobs steve jobs steve wozniak thing on his friends like you guys give me some money you be uh, you yeah, know yeah like obsequious to, to the crime boss and say oh yeah no we'll totally pay you blah 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 he's basically setting them up and say you two go and show him that you're totally weak i will take your money go to him because i have judged that if i have a little bit of spine He's going to say, I like your style, kid. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I won't, you know, I won't even give them all the money that, I, that you said you're going to pay them. And then I'll go and kill them and take the money back anyway. Yep. Yeah, he's playing it from multiple angles. But part of it, part of it is he's ambitious. There's no doubt, no question about it. He's ambitious. But part of it, too, to me is that it, it comes across to me that he has a moral core. And the reason, one of the reasons he moves against Don Felucci is that he sees an opportunity to be ambitious. But the other thing gets to that line. He said, when he first starts learning about Don Felucci and he's like, well, why is he bothering other Italians? You know, it's that he's, he's chosen Don Felucci has chosen to abuse his position to just terrorize his own people. And you can see it in every scene Don Felucci's in his interaction with everybody else in, in the neighborhood is he's different. He doesn't dress like them. He doesn't act like them. He's he shows no. He just jumps on them. jumps on your car while you're driving down the street. Exactly. He shakes you down for cash right there. Yeah. I I think if Don Felucci was a good guy, like in the sense that Vito was a good guy, that Vito never would have. He wasn't going to. You know, he he might have gotten involved with the rackets. But it goes right back to what drove him out of Sicily. Vito understands that there's a system, and it may not be the law. But there is a way that things work in order for things to function correctly. He under, I mean, he saw what happened, you know, when you run afoul of the system. But I, I think he, I don't know if he, ethics, is that the right word for it? But yeah. he has a sense of the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do in this system. And I, I think that that's obviously a huge contrast with what Michael ends up with. There, there's, cor- there's corruption and graft, and it's a matter of corruption and graft that actually watches out for the backs of of people uh, and rather than take advantage of them and, and create the kind of environment that is what pushed him out of Sicily was somebody who was, you know, really just directly, you know, taking out hits on people. And he he thought that he had a better way of doing this. And this is him acting on all of that. When the, when the grocer gives Vito the free orange and just insists you take it, just no, you've got to take it. it. It's not out of fear. You could see it. It's palpable. It's it's just another one of those characters who's in the movie for 20 seconds, but is great. It's is he's like, no, I love you. You know, you, it's, it's almost like, like it's like carrying carrying your mother's groceries yeah, yeah, home. You, you know, know why they do it? It's, it's out, out of respect. respect. Yeah. Well, but he's also sort of starstruck. It's sort of like, oh, my God, Vito Corleone's going to take one of my oranges. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell kids down generations about the day that I gave Don Corleone an orange. Yeah. Right. And he takes the orange unlike the groceries. Yes. That's another turning point. And that before he was refusing the groceries. Now he's like, you know what? I do deserve a damn orange. <laughs> give me, give me the orange. You know and, what? You give me an orange. You're yeah. my friend. Yeah, and and the so the young Vito, the gap between young Vito and De Niro obviously is huge. But I feel like they do a good job of bridging that because the way Vito's story plays out as you go to the you know the the adult De Niro, you see that quiet, observant kid. 
He's mm-hmm. watching. He's figuring out mm-hmm. how everything works. He's not saying much. He asks a couple of questions every once in a while, but he's observing. That's how he's able to figure out what the right play is. I tell you what, guys, you each give me 50 bucks. Blah, blah. Like that's ha- because he had spent the whole rest of the movie watching. Even when, when uh, the Don comes into his grocery store, he just goes back to his seat with his little sausage and cheese and he sits and he watches and he you know has a short conversation. That very quiet kid, like you could tell the gears were turning inside yeah. there. And even as an adult, that's still his mindset. Even in the Marlon Brando, it's a little bit of his MO is to just be quiet, sit back, think and watch and only speak when, when you have to. So I, I think it's nice continuity. This is the fundamental functional difference between the way that Vito works and the way that Michael works, where Vito was a was a kid refugee who had to find a way to survive. And Michael is the kid who was He's going the route of education and went into the military. And he looks at doing the job from a militaristic uh, perspective of eliminate all enemies, you know, silence, silence those who need to be silenced. I, I don't know. If that's a military thing. I think it's his personality that he can't he yeah. can't bear he, that he has an inferiority complex that he externalizes something that his father never had. His father never felt inferior, despite being at the bottom of the ladder of, you know, immigrants in New York. And by the way, that the sectarian nature of New York, when, you know, when Vito is walking around as De Niro, the fact that why does he go with his own people? Like the fact that Italians were their own people, emphasized many times in all of these movies, like mm-hmm. the, the the prejudice against Italians and the viewing them of them as separate, which seems ridiculous in today's day and age when they're just like, you know, they've completely assimilated along yeah, with the other Irish, white people. Also, so hated. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it, um, it's it's one of the it's one of the things that 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 I associated with or that that I related to the most was I mean you know as, as a Cuban American, uh, Cuban Americans love these movies. Uh, Jewish Americans love these movies. There, there's that kind of tribal aspect to it. Of there is there is some sort of specific stigmatization on different peoples, and it's one of the reasons that this isn't just a movie for for Italian Americans. It's a movie for people who have uh, who have come in, uh, you know, uh, who, who've immigrated in, who have assimilated and and had to find their way. Back in the uh, the later time frame, this is a, a long segment where we stay away from before we go back to Vito, and they have the the. Uh, the the where, where Finucci jumps on the car and all of that. So we'll we'll wrap back around to that and the festa and stalking him from the roof and all that. But there's this long block in here where lots of stuff happens. Um, he Michael goes to Miami, visits with Hyman Roth, um, mm. gets a nice gets offered a tuna sandwich, which he turns down. I love that moment. <laughs> it's like, would you like a tuna sandwich? Right. You Roth, look hungry. Roth's wife and her dress that uh, like t- fills the entire room. Yeah, it's just great. He's just watching a college football and, game. And Roth, Roth's house so modest. Oh yeah, yeah. The, you know, well, he's just a, a just a retired. He's a retired investor on a pension. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was it was like Michael was was going to pick up a donation for the local theater community group. <laughs> I, I expected someone to come in and start haranguing him Seinfeld style. He's ch- on a very fixed income a lot of this movie um and many points in this movie i find myself thinking what are they thinking because this movie makes you always ask like what's their motivation what are they thinking and you see it in this scene because um they have the you're like okay he suspects something because of the thing with the guy in new york uh he's going to see him what's this gonna all be about and and instead they like they do the small talk thing and then there's that great moment where they like close the door move the chairs together yeah. 
turn up the TV playing college mm-hmm. football, and then they talk. Just a little healthy paranoia. The whole thing is a, the whole thing is really a, a wonder of, of blocking <laughs> and shots in that little little tiny space. Yeah. Like you see, we walk in, you see Lee Strasberg with his leg over the chair, like all like lounged out, and just the way I mean, you know, I feel like you could teach a whole class on how to sit down like Al Pacino because he has oh, a very yeah. specific kind of way that he sits down. Well, and it was it was Lee Strasberg who taught that class. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. this is a guy and his mentor playing a scene with each other, yeah. two of the great actors of all time and just getting to watch them effectively quote unquote eat soup is is phenomenal yeah i i, I like that lee strasberg could not be more i'm an old man in florida when he walks in he's just like here i am i'm hanging out i got you like the college football and then they and then they do that and, you, and you're still asking like what is what are these characters motivations here and we don't know and and uh, mm-hmm. i feel like that's one of the cool things about this movie is that for a while you're like What's Michael doing? Who's telling the truth here as we kind of mm-hmm. go through? Because um, because then we get the thing where we see Pantangeli in New York, and he has been told, you know, you got to make peace with the Rosada family, but I, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of it. Um, and and he's just said to Hyman Roth that that Pantangeli's dead. Um, so it's like there he's playing both these sides. Who who's he really playing here? And then there's a hit on Pantangeli. Which also brings to mind the fact that we have so many successful hits in the first movie, and this this movie has a lot of failed attempts to kill people at, at sometimes intentionally failed sometimes. So, but but you don't always know. So Pantangeli gets strangled, but doesn't quite die, and a cop comes in, and there's a whole thing, and uh, he ends up uh, he ends up not not dying. It's an attempt on his life. Like the bar owners, no, not in the restaurant, no, <laughs> like not in here. Wait, what's the outside. purposely what's the purposely failed hit attempt? The I, the one the one where say hello Michael Corleone says hello yeah D- was, Danny Aiello tries to garrot Frankie right and, and almost and they, kills they him. wanted to make sure that Pantangeli thought that Michael was was trying to kill him right it was all orchestrated oh I see okay. I don't get it no I don't get it well it wasn't it wasn't a failed hit attempt it was a it was a false flag a misdirection yeah. oh so he perv- it, he wasn't supposed to kill. Frank Pantangeli. You're supposed to think that we we almost killed you, uh, but didn't quite pull it off, and Michael's the one to blame. Oh, right? I didn't get that. Oh, yeah, wow. I didn't get that at all. When you garrot somebody, it is re- as if you get the. I don't know why I know this, but when you <laughs> get the wire around their neck, it's <laughs> real hard to screw up that kind of murder. Well, that's why the cop is all orchestrated to come in at the right time, and they got the whole you know, and uh, the person who gets shot is you know the, the his whatever whatever guy. The, the but then what man. do they what do they think Pantangeli is going to do? With that but he's going to think Michael turned on him. He's going to turn, and then he's going to in turn turn on Michael. Exactly How? by going to Congress and being like, you know, I'm going to tell you, there's no buffers between me and and, and uh, Michael Corleone. Why would they think though that he would turn turn to to the because state? they're going to have him on everything, and they're then he's going to flip. So this is Hyman, Hyman Roth's grand plan, right? I mean, that's the good thing about this movie is that at various points, like the the the, the image of this movie is that Michael is this devious mastermind who tragically goes too far or whatever, but then Michael knows what's going on and is seeing three moves ahead. But at various points in this movie, Michael confidently says something that eventually turns out to be wrong. Yeah. Like that he was mistaken. I mean, the Godfather does it part two, you know, little did I know it was Barzini all along. Right. Um, in the scenes, we're like, oh, that Michael, he really knows what's going on. He must be purposely lying to this person. But I think it's clear in a lot of scenes, he wasn't purposely lying for the purpose of, you know, of throwing somebody off. Sometimes he does that, but sometimes he's just wrong. He, he, hasn't, he <laughs> hasn't figured it out yet. Only at the end does he put all the pieces together eventually. We also get the extended set of scenes in Havana. 
that happened here, which I believe were shot in the Dominican Republic, according to the credits. Yeah, no way they were shot in Cuba. No, but it is set, amazingly, it is the last days of Batista, just before the revolution, <laughs> like, just before. I'm like, sorry, but he's credited as Cuban president. They don't want to demean somebody who then became a resident of the state of Florida sure. and whose family then took over most of Florida Did politics. Sorry, again, not a yes, political not, podcast, no, no, but that's not what at all. happened. But, but what's amazing about the, the way this movie does it is not just like, you know, Michael sees the, the guy pull the grenade and the, he's like, oh, these rebels could win. And Hyman Roth's like, no, 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 give me a couple of million dollars investment. We're going to own these hotels down here. It's going to be great. We're going to be out of the and not under the thumb of the American government anymore. And Michael's kind of unsure. But it like gets to the point where they like literally they witness the announcement by the president that he's going to be leaving. <laughs> and they're all like, it's we like, got to get out of here. Uh, I'm going to be leaving with your money. And everyone's like leaving the party like, Ugh. And, and then there's the sirens and they're running. The entire and, upper classes of Cuba are saying, well, let's just put all the cash in the suitcases and get go. on the boats, get on the planes and get out of town as as soon as we can. So there's there's a lot that happens here. There's a there's there's a uh, there's a, 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 a New Year's Eve party. There's like a, there's a, a sex show that they go to at one point. Or some important plot details are slipped. There is there is the rooftop party where Hyman Roth uh, tells Michael that the money hasn't come yet because he's waiting for yep. his two million that he expects. But of course, the best part to of that sure. scene is the best part of that scene is. Smaller piece. Yeah, the cake. Bring bring some of the cake. (laughs) Yeah, well, a smaller smaller piece for me was was the effectively the cherry on top of him earlier saying, "I want to make sure everybody sees it before it's cut." Yep, everyone's got to see the cake. Everyone's Uh, got to see such He's such an old man. So particular about all of his all of his stuff. So so there's just there's so much here. Oh, and and I should mention that the the senator uh, in one of the things that I really like is the senator asks for a redhead. And Fredo's like, yes, yes, we can absolutely provide that. And then, of course, later in Con the party, they are, they are dancing. He is dancing with oh, a redhead. Yeah, we, we, so. skipped, we skipped over that, but this is a question I, that I, I don't know the answer to. I haven't been able to figure out, mostly because I feel like it, it, if it, if it plays out too strongly towards Michael being super evil too early. Like, so they, the way they get leverage on the senator, the senator who is totally against them, they get leverage on him because he's he frequents these uh, you know brothels, right? And so they have him with the prostitute, right? And it's like I don't know what happened, I don't remember anything, and now she's dead. My questions are: one, is she actually dead, or is she just pretending? Two, if she's actually dead, did Michael Corleone's crime family essentially kill a prostitute just to get leverage on the senator? And if they did, yes, and yeah, I say yes, and oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes, yeah, that is yes pretty severe. I mean, they go through the whole thing of like, oh, she has no family, so on and so forth, but uh-huh. it's like, boy, that's. That's really harsh really early. At this point, I feel like we're still supposed to, like, the downfall of Michael is supposed to be a slope in this movie. And in the beginning, it's like, if you think about it for a little bit, he decided because someone insulted him in his house that he's going to kill a prostitute. It's just, you know, just part of doing business. This is also like another example of the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses where this is compromise that they probably got. If, if Fredo did indeed run that place into the ground, am I right? But like there was, they obviously they had connections with this place. So they would know that that's a place where he would be doing the kinds of things that he does. And that would be smart, him. And they would know which ones to kill who don't have family who aren't going to put up a stink. And they would, and they would, everyone would be okay with that. Like, I, I feel like that hmm. even Michael should have known that that was far outside his father's code for this type of thing. It's Al Neary, man. Al Neary. I need an Al Neary in my life, man. I think like it's I, the, I think anything. it's a rare move, John, but I think it's like when you're, when you're going to get compromised on a senator, especially yeah. a senator who, you know, in a state where you need a senator, uh, who can help you get casinos, then you do it. <laughs> yep. And you, you know, it's a rare move, but you do it. And the one thing I think you need to read into that scene in terms of if you ever had a thought of maybe that 
they were nice enough to have the girl fake it as I think you have to read into it that there was only so much gruesomeness that they could actually show. There's a lot of blood on the sheets. But I think if you read into the Senator Geary, how shaken up he was, you've got to read into that, that he knows she's freaking dead, dead. She is. is Or that that the senator actually killed her because he had weird predilections and he literally did do this and they were just there to pick up the But if you look if you look at how shaken up he is, he she's she's like intestines on the bed dead. Yeah, she yeah. Is. I I can understand the lack of clarity. And I think I think what we're intended to think is that uh, maybe this is just uh, luck on the Corleone's part. And this happened to happen somewhere that they had ties and that kind of thing. And it's only later in the movie that you realize that, no, 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 Michael has been absolutely doing stuff this bad and just keeping it. Well, there's, there's the shot, there's a shot of Al Neary in the next room. To me, that, that says the whole thing. Al, yeah. Al killed her. Yeah. I, I have no problem. No, I doubt that all his henchmen would do this. And what totally. else could have that, happened? Yeah. What else well, could like have said, possibly it have happened? Been, it could have been that he frequents this place and gets hopped up on drugs and actually does get rough with them and legitimately killed her. And they were just there. To, to scoop it up. Well, he implies that they've done the tying up game before. It's just in this case, I'm guessing somebody slipped him a 1950s roofie. Yep. Yeah. And and now he kind of blocked out. I mean, that out. could have yeah. driven driven him mad to the or LSD or something, and driven him to the point where he really yeah. Did they kill they him. had and they had Al Neary or somebody else watching him and getting a pattern of behavior and figuring out that okay, it's this girl this day of the week, you know, uh, and. And this is this is the easy target. So let's just do this. If she was just merely suffocated, there could have been a play for cover uh, gold paint. Yeah, like maybe you know, or yeah, but maybe he did it. You know, maybe oh my god, I blacked out, and maybe I you know. But the fact that she was all cut up, it's so beyond the pale. Yeah, yeah. It it you know, and it was purposefully done to drive him out of his mind. Yeah, yeah. A literal hatchet man was employed to do something here. It was it was very intentional and very. Uh, very specific. So another key thing that happens in this block is uh, Michael's realization that Fredo has betrayed him, right? This is the yeah. Fredo. We get, we not only are there some looks between Fredo, that look, that look on Michael's face. Oh, the look on his face when he turns. It's just, that's when they're at the sex show and, and Fredo says, Oh, yeah. you know, Johnny Ola took me here and all of that. And he's directly contradicting. He said something he said at dinner and Michael realizes, right. and like, I think he actually puts his hands up to his face, right? Like that's yeah, the he moment. Does. His head goes down into his hands. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Falls on him. He's in the background of that scene. We're supposed to be looking at the front, but if you look behind, there's Michael, and it just it just crushes him. Well, at dinner, you can tell that Michael is suspicious. Right. Yeah. Of, yeah, totally. of Fredo, yeah. Fredo and what's his Johnny. name? Johnny. What's his yeah, name? Johnny. Johnny. We don't know each other. We're just meeting for the first time. At dinner, he's like ninety percent on Fredo, uh-huh. and he just needs that last ten, and he doesn't want to believe it. Oh, sure. He went into this knowing what was going on. He had his guy, not Rocco, but the guy, the guy who eventually tries to hit later. That guy's in the background all the time, basically just you know what that conversation was. Look, when I give you the heads up, go do it because we know this is what happened. Uh-huh. He's just. I think Michael knows what's going on, but he needs some certainty that it's what it is because he knows how momentous that means. What a momentous change that means for his business and his life. And, and he sits on it for a long time. Like, yeah. You know. Well, I, I think I think he intentionally waits until mom is dead. Yes, He's not right. going to kill his brother oh, yeah, until course, mom's dead. If if it well, if, if I could if I could uh, you know play play the Cuban card and please uh, do. You know, we, we had we had uh, opening statements. I have an uh, you have a Cuban statement. Inter- 
I have a Cuban statement. All right. Well, um, while we're in oh, Cuba, boy. this is a good time for lots it. to. I was just going to mention that Hyman Roth. They, Hyman Roth. They also try. He he has a he has something he's taken to the hospital at, on New Year's Eve, and they try to smother him with a pillow. But um, he, the army marches in and uh, and and kills the guy who's trying yeah. to do that. Hyman yeah, Roth has bad. made better friends with the local military than they assume that he yes. has. Uh, but the first off, uh, I, I find it very interesting that um, that uh, that apparently uh, Cuban weather is exactly. Exactly, Ascot weather, um, <laughs> because that's when that's when Michael switches to Ascots uh, yeah. for you know just for this little trip, uh, and and that that has become such an iconic um, still frame from this movie that you've seen in different home video releases and everything. I find it funny that you know it's it, you know this is this is uh, this is Michael relaxing in the tropics, Michael Corleone. Uh, he's he's in he's in Ascot mode with um, his dark suit jacket over it. That's great, great weather <laughs> yeah, for down there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, stay out of the sun. The, the thing, the things that, um, that I think, you know, people, it, it's pretty blatant. It's pretty, you know, hit you over the head. Um, but is real, real life stuff. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the immigrant, uh, gone bad kind of narrative being not indicative of most immigrants. The massive corruption within the Cuban government under Batista is absolutely a thing and is absolutely what happened. And, you know, Cuba is portrayed in, you know, the musical guys and dolls in, in other, uh, popular media during this era of being a fun time place where everybody goes to be corrupt. Uh, it was the, it was the bordered on, uh, bordered by oceans Las Vegas of its time. Um, where you didn't have to deal with the U.S. government having sway over things, where, you know, corruption was good and everybody was in the corruption business. And, um, you know, again, this is not a political podcast, but I would feel remiss if I didn't uh, touch on a couple of the maybe relevant, maybe directly interesting uh, political themes at play here, uh, where the captains of industry, the people of IT&T, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, you know, are presenting a golden telephone. Um, you know, it seems like corrupt rich men really like things just covered in gold. Um, huh. and they, they like to make a show of things and they like to have all of the, the brokers of power around a table, even if they're the only ones being seen, uh, with all of these people, they just like to surround themselves with feeling important. Um, show everyone and, the cake first. Yeah. Show everyone the cake first, you know, take a look at this, take in this view, look, you know, we're well, going well, to own the all statement of this. That he says about that. We finally have what we've always wanted, a government that will work with us. So just, just hang <sighs> yeah. in there. Citizens United will come. Hang in there. Yeah. A, a government that'll work with us. A government, a government, this, this, this kind of government knows how to help business to encourage it. Yeah. It's, it's such, it's such, even, they're even dog whistling while they sit there on the roof in Cuba. Like, this is the, this is the government that knows how to work with us. Like, A, they're organized crime. And B, like, yes, this government does. This is exactly what you've always been looking for. Uh, and if you just, if you just lived another 50 years, you would have had in the U S but, but yeah. yeah and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, look, it, it would, it would have to be a very strange, uh, terrible age that we would live in that we could directly relate to people cheering a uh, government that was directly, uh, corrupt in, in finding ways to undercut its citizenry at the, you know, at, at their expense to benefit big business and, uh, and just trample over, uh, over the rights of the common man. But, uh, you know, uh, if you imagine real hard, uh, you, you might be able to, to somehow relate to that. Well, don't um, worry. After, after the people's revolution, I'm sure everything will be much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that everything will, will work so, so much better. Uh, but I, 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 you know, that, that micro monologue that Michael has about what he saw, uh, in the street just happening and just, 
and just, you know, the, the other, the other folks just going, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. You know, that's, that's not going to be a big deal. He's, he's quiet. I mean, this is a little bit of the veto thing. He's quietly reading the scene. He's like, before I give you my $2 million, I'm just going to get to lay at the land. He brings the $2 million there. Fredo delivers it, which is a bold move. Like to have Fredo bring your suitcase with $2 million. But I guess air travel was different then, as we see later, when everybody meets Simon coming off the plane. Um, he brings the money. He gets as far as having the money there. Uh, but like, you know, he's, he's just like, just be patient. We got plenty of time. Uh, you know, should I bring the suitcase immediately from Fredo and throw it in Hyman Ross's lap? No, I'm going to have some more conversations with them. You know, if that's on the table when I come out, I'll know I have a partner, right? Um, he, he, he plays this He plays this wisely. He's the only one with his head on his shoulders about how things are going to go down because he gets the lay of the land. Now, the, the, the only other uh, Cuban history related thing that I wanted to mention with this is this movie was released in 1974. Six years later, my dad and many, many other Cubans got on a bunch of boats and escaped Cuba on the Mariel boat lift coming over to the United States as refugees and fueling, you know, the narrative of movies like Scarface and others about these bad dudes coming over on boats. Uh, but they were they were escaping the uh, the corrupt government that came in directly after this corrupt government. Cuba has had just a series of corrupt governments ever since it existed. Um, but it's it's interesting with this movie uh, playing with all of these themes that were then 15 years in the past as the movie was being made just in advance of a, a bunch of refugees, you know, a couple hundred thousand, uh, you know, escaping the island and coming over with their own set of mythology applied to them uh, in in some part because of popular media like this, uh, making people just uh, you know, accept assumptions about uh, immigrant people and refugees. Scarface didn't help there either. Merlin just threw something in the chat that that was the 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 thing that I watched this afternoon that I was going to bring up about uh, John Cazal. Um, there's a, an HBO documentary that's about 40 minutes long uh, that is is really fantastic. And you know, as as much as the line about Fredo and Pacino's delivery of it is it, it lives in so many people's memory, people don't remember John Cazal's name as well as they remember the name of Fredo. Uh, and Merlin, I, I assume you, you probably have something to say about this thing. Oh, just that, you know, given his, uh, regrettably short career, um, it's amazing to just go look at how many dingers he was in. Every movie he was in was uh, nominated for best picture. Wow. <laughs> the two first Godfather movies. Yeah. The conversation, deer hunter. He has an awesome haircut in dog day afternoon. Yeah. Dog day afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, um, he, he died of lung cancer. He actually, they actually made dog day or, uh, um, they made uh, a deer hunter. Uh, the the they reordered the shooting schedule to shoot his scenes first because they knew he was going to die, and he died before. Uh, shortly after, I think they shot the movie before he'd even seen any edited version of it. Yeah, the movie wasn't done and edited by the time he died, and it certainly wasn't and, out. And they largely did um, it because I think Robert De Niro put up the money to guarantee because they couldn't get insurance for him. And no kidding. And uh, yeah. and then and, wow. and it largely happened because of that, and because it was you know he and Meryl Streep were together, and they were in that movie together, and that was part of the, the you know the last few months they spent together. But yes, Do you literally think of the amazing actor babies they would have had. Yeah. Oh. Right. <laughs> Oh my God. The, 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 the phenomenal thing about this documentary is it's only 40 minutes long, but it covers so much ground in that 40 minutes. And, and it even, it, Meryl Streep was personally, uh, convinced to do an interview for it, uh, by, by someone or another. I, I forget who, but they, they cross cut an interview with her, an interview with Robert De Niro, uh, where, you know, she says that to this day, she can't get De Niro to, to directly admit that he put up the completion bond money necessary 
for the movie to be able to use John Cazale, but uh, it, it digs into the fact that Pacino and Cazale had worked together, you know, and, and in this in this movie, honestly, you know, it's a precursor to them working in Dog Day Afternoon together. But we really see uh, one of the uh, two of the absolute best pairings of Al Pacino and another guy acting. And, you know, it's him and Lee Strasberg earlier and throughout this movie and him and John Cazale in, in what they get to do with this thing. Um, but but that documentary does such a great job of fleshing out this actor that you're like, hey, you know what? Whatever happened to him? You know, I don't really know that much about that guy. What was his name again? John something. I don't know. This has the scene. Speaking of Merlin's opening with the with the Hyman tick, we got Hyman shirtless on the couch. Oh, <laughs> man. Chest air and all his glory. I love it. So great. Talking what a great about speech. the things. And he, he gets he gets a little angry. He finally he finally comes out of his shell is like, this is the business we've chosen with his little I, you know, I didn't ask <laughs> who gave the order. That, like he's he's finally he's finally having having his say about what he has to say, and he has a little bit of the same things in Michael. And he really is mad about Mo Green, but he's like, mm-hmm. but I but I swallowed it down because you know this is the and then he just he pulls it back together and you know if it's I'm going if it's on the table and I come back oh no I have a partner that was. That's his. That's his big scene. I feel like in the movie that it all yeah. it all comes together there with the. Chest you get there. both Strasberg and Pacino getting to play explosive and fiery and angry and serious, and the 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 amazing thing about Cazal's performance is that he is so self assured, effortless, and just note perfect about just uh, being worthless and self-defeating and sad and hating himself. You know, it is not a showy performance. You know, there are people that do emotionally hurt and damaged and, you know, feeling inferior kind of characters where they're really just wrenching every last scenery chewing, you know, facial expression they can get. But it's, it's in these just gentle little very specific movements that he does, body language stuff that he does, you know, where he's, it's just how he uses a folding chair. The, um, that, that's my favorite line, by the way, in the Godfather movies is this is the business we've chosen. Uh, there's the, the, the nice moment where while they're at the, uh, the strip club sex show, whatever you want to call it, uh, where, where Fredo's in his element. He's doing the one thing he actually is good at. He's good at being the guy in the family. If you got to take some people out and show them, you know, we're going to get these guys drunk and get them some girls. He's good at it. He is. He knows people. Yeah. He knows the places there. And there's even that thing like, oh my God, how did you find this place? And Fredo is told, it's a one moment where he's happy. He knows he's doing a good job, but because he's, you know, he is kind of dim. That's where he screws up. And because he's totally relaxed, he's totally in his element. He's doing the thing he's good at. That's when he just blabs that, you know, Johnny, whatever his name is, knows all these places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not, it's not that Fredo's not good for anything. Like he, he, he is, this is the thing he's good at. Right. Same as in the first movie. Yep. We are not close to being done with this movie. We have to continue, but this episode ends here. Join us in our next episode of The Incomparable as we continue the conversation. Yes, that will be The Godfather Part 2, Part 2. See you next week. <laughs>